Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas About Education. Suffering from low morale, depressed, feeling unfairly blamed for the ills of society, you must be a teacher. So began an article in the Educational Supplement of the London Times last year. An accompanying editorial went on to say that the nation's leaders claim to put education at the top of the agenda, but they leave teachers at the bottom. A lot of Canadian teachers feel the same way. Everyone wants to fix education, but no one seems to want to include teachers in the solution. And teachers are our subject tonight on ideas, as we continue with David Cayley's series, The Education Debates. We'll tell one teacher's story and then look at the impact school reform has had on teachers generally. Finally, we'll consider the impact teachers might have on school reform, if only they were given the chance. The Education Debates, Part 3, by David Cayley. Those who have listened to the first two programs of this series have heard several school reformers denounce progressive education. Progressivism, roughly speaking, is the opinion that the needs, aptitudes, and interests of the individual child should dictate the shape and pace of that child's education. The reformers say that this approach has fostered incompetence, and inequality. But many teachers continue to uphold the ideas the reformers scorn. I'll begin tonight with one such teacher, someone who deplores the pretense of objectivity in testing, who prefers free movement and individualized instruction in the classroom, who values the exercise of intelligence more highly than the production of correct answers, and who still honors the progressive philosophy that sees growth, experimentation, and the child's active construction of knowledge as the heart of education. The teacher is Alex Lawson, and during the first part of the program, she'll look back at the Toronto Alternative School where she was able to put this philosophy into practice. Then she'll reflect about the changes that have happened since. The story begins with her own remembered experience of school. It was there, she thinks now, that her views on teaching first began to form. To me, it was like going to church, in that how could you pass the day in your mind, because there was certainly nothing interesting going on in the classroom for me at that point. You know, the teacher would stand at the front, and then within moments, I would lose interest. And, you know, so I had, I had developed a fairly interesting interior life, but it's hard to carry on for hours <laughs> at a time. And I can just remember being almost in tears, waiting for that four o'clock bell, waiting for that freedom. And at least in church, I could read the Bible, I could read something, but in school at that time, you could not read, while, obviously, while the teacher was talking. And uh, you had to do what you had to do, which was often very, just reading little passages here and there, each of your classmates would also read their one paragraph and that was reading and and math was algorithms. Oh, it's horrible. The number of kids who feel this way about school is sometimes forgotten by those who advocate a more rigorous curriculum and who expect it to produce more biddable children and greater social equality. Alex Lawson never forgot. She worked with kids outside schools for eight years, she says, before she was finally willing to try teaching. And when she did, 
in front of 38 grade 7 and 8 students at a Toronto elementary school. She found herself doing more or less what had been done to her. She uses mathematics, her special love, as an example. In mathematics, at that point, I knew that to tell the kids to open the book and to do page 20 would be as horrible for them as it had been for me. And I wanted to do something different, but all of the, the, my colleagues in the school said, well, it's just too much to do anything different and don't bother trying. And it, eventually, I didn't try. I couldn't. I couldn't figure out how to do it at that time. And so I would have the kids open the book, and they didn't understand it, many of them. And they would look back at me with the blank face, and I just felt horrible. I mean, I, it was everything I said I would not do, I was doing it at that point. It was a lot about, it was about control, it was about discipline, and it was about minimal learning at that point. So I realized that I was not going to inflict this upon them, and I left. Lawson took a job as the director of a daycare whose operations were meshed with an adjoining school. The school was called Alternative Primary School, and it made a striking contrast to the one she had just left. I got to see education in a way I had never seen it before, and it was sort of it was the embodiment of my dreams. Here was a place where kids were excited about learning and where things were being tried out and where there was pedagogical discussion happening all the time. And I was just thrilled. I realized that there was a place to do the things that I wanted to do. Particularly impressive to her were the methods of the grade five and six teacher, John Dunlop, who was then working with an approach called the contract system. Kids were given a contract for four or five weeks and basically it outlined everything they were responsible for and they could then set out to undertake it at different times rather than him directing from the front they would go off and work on whatever area they were interested at the time they had to do it all but they set their agenda they planned their time they were responsible for getting it done and um, you know that was the system I eventually adopted the opportunity to employ this method herself came when she was hired to teach at an alternative primary school called Cherrywood in the borough of York. The school had been started several years before she came by a small group of parents eager to create a convivial school. After much discussion, they had come to agree on certain principles. Parents were to be involved in the classroom and exercise authority in the school but the teachers were to be paramount on pedagogical questions. There were to be close links with the community, including regular community service, and the children's academic programs were to be individualized. Alex Lawson took grades four and five and put the contract system into effect. I wanted them to take responsibility rather than me being constantly in charge and telling them what to do. I wanted them to learn how to plan their own time and to suffer through as they learned that, rather than learning it as I did in university. I felt that actually not enough is asked of children of 11 and 12. They're quite capable of that, and they did prove themselves to be that. And that it would also give them the freedom to do some of the things that they were keen on. So the classroom looked entirely different if you came in. Now this took, it was an evolution. But in, you know, a few years into it, 
uh, a day in the classroom would be that we would start with the morning run. I'm a huge, I really believe that, that physical exercise ought to be a big part of it. So they actually had gym twice a day. Like it or lump it, they did. That was my authoritarian <laughs> self. So we ran every morning. And actually that, that evolved into half the school running every morning. All the junior kids ran. And then um, the first half hour, 40 minutes of every day, we would be discussing either current events or whatever topic had come up that we could somehow critically analyze it and really think about whatever that topic was, who else it affected, and try and look at it from different points of view and so on to really teach them critical analysis and to allow them to develop a voice, even if it wasn't a voice I always wanted to hear and I might have some difficulty with them for, that, for them to experiment with that because that's the nature of that age. And then after that, they would go off and work on whatever they had planned out for their day and off they would go. So you come into the classroom. And what might you see in the classroom? Um, I think the first thing you would notice was that, A, I wasn't at the front. You might not even be able to find me. I'd be off in a corner with a, one group of kids working on something. And the rest of the kids would be engaged in whatever they were meant to be, whatever they had decided upon. I think the second thing you would see is often there would be adults, as many as I could rope in would be in the classroom. Some of them would be parents, others would be just whomever I had managed to get into the classroom. And then the third thing would be that there are often be little kids in. So my neighboring teacher, the grade one, two teacher and I often had kids in each other's classes as much as possible. So in amongst my 10 and 12 year olds, you would see this six and seven year olds, which I loved having in there. And, and sometimes they were the ones that got turfed out of their room for being a pain in the butt and they would come over and work in, in my room. And other times they'd come over to visit with their buddies or their siblings to get help on something. So there's a constant flow of ages, which I really wanted, you know, which we all wanted. We worked as a team, the, the staff did. So there was a flow throughout the whole area. It was an open concept. There were kids everywhere. Now, according to the parody, that, which I have frequently read, of this kind of classroom, it will have been intolerably noisy. Was noisy, yeah. I mean... <laughs> was, was, obviously not intolerably. <laughs> no. I mean, we had 90 kids in an open pot. That's a lot of kids. And they were all talking about different things. So rather than just me and 30 kids listening to me, there were, you know, there might be 10, 15 conversations going on. And we worked on the noise, believe me. We worked on the noise. Um, it would have interfered and did interfere with a few kids. There's a few kids I sort of, <laughs> they built themselves these little cubicles and these little forts at one point to try and barricade themselves off, to give themselves some quiet. There were times in the day we all had the same reading time. So for, an, for 50 minutes every day, you could hear a pin drop. There were 90 kids reading. And they were either reading or they were beside their book and silent <laughs> until they started reading. It's hard to waste 50 minutes, which is why we had it for so long. Yeah. So they would eventually read regardless. Okay. But yeah. So you, that was a sort of necessary evil as far as you were concerned. It was always... You tried to negotiate, we you tried, tried to control we it. And, and the teachers, we would plan our time. I mean, we, part of the, 
part of the situation there was that, the, that we were a team. We were hired to work together. We wanted together. We had planning meetings every week. So we would say, oh, God, it's getting so noisy in here. We've got to do something. And we'd sit down and try and sort it out. And we'd sort it out with the kids. I mean, it was how do we learn to live together in this situation? So it was a point of discussion. And it was a point of it was process. And it was part of learning to live together because part of the ethos of the place was a community. And that's certainly... It was developed by the parents rather than the teachers. It was developed as a community. What happened to the kids as a result of your being able to, to create a, a situation of this kind? I think a number of things happened. I think, and part of the reason I was so drawn to it was that the kids on the outer edges and the child might be on the uh, on what I would see as the outer edge because either they had some learning disabilities or they were wired for sound and had difficulty sitting the amount of time they had to sit in the regular classroom or they had other interests you know they were similar to my own experience where I wanted to try other things and I was quite keen and found schooling boring. So there were kids on the outer edges for a whole pile of different reasons and for those kids Cherrywood was a way that they could be in the system and still flourish. Now they didn't all flourish. There were some who needed a very structured situation and Cherrywood was not that. The contracts were actually quite highly structured but there was the noise and they did need, I think there is a group of kids who do need direct instruction, who do have a distinct sort of uh, disability either in reading and writing or mathematics, and they do need uh, a different situation than what we had to offer. But that's a tiny group. And th for the rest of them, most of them learn how to plan their own time. That was the number one thing I was reading through last night as I was thinking about this. I was reading through some of the yearbook things that the kids put together upon graduation. And for most of them, the most pivotal experience for them was completing their first contract, learning how to manage their time, being responsible for themselves. This was fantastic. And having that responsibility, they loved. And indeed, they missed it when they went to grade seven. They found that a bit of a difficult transition. What about the little kids like I would have been, the little proto-intellectuals, readers, and so on? I mean, you would have been in heaven. Did it was actually quite academic, I would say, in that every contract the kids were responsible for developing a research project on a theme that we had decided upon, and they had to put together a well written project in which they had done research, they'd read a number of books, and they had developed their own ideas and constructed what they think had gone on in whatever topic it was. Um, they were to include their own ideas, but they were also to bolster it with what they had read. So, and that was actually quite demanding. It wasn't enough for them to say, well, I think this or I think that. I would, they were always asked to substantiate their thoughts whether it was on paper or verbally. So if you were academically inclined, it, you know, it was a garden. The vibrancy of the academic program at Cherrywood is worth pausing over for a moment. Reform discourses are often hinged on an absolute opposition between child-centered methods and academic achievement. The real situation, in my experience, is a good deal more complicated than such simple dichotomies can comprehend.
The system of individual contracts, for example, provides both accountability and self-direction, elements supposed to be on opposite sides of this great divide. Through the use of such methods, Cherrywood came to be seen as a model both of parent involvement and of successful child-centered instruction. Visitors from around Ontario and farther afield were frequent, and the school was used as a preferred placement for teachers in training by the local faculties of education. This success, however, proved to be a mixed blessing. Cherrywood's popularity with middle-class parents led to charges of elitism and strained relations with the regular school in whose building Cherrywood was housed. The York Board of Education resolved the resulting controversy by merging the two schools. Alex Lawson taught for a year in the new school and then took academic leave. I had a really hard time with its demise, not just because it had not been supported, but because of the things I was then asked to do in the classroom, things which I had, you know, initially quit for the first time. I was now being asked to well, if I'd say this year, to do things like give graded report cards, which were an anathema to me, and enormous amounts of testing which have come in, I I'm fundamentally disagree with as, as, a, as a reasonable pedagogical tool. It's, I don't believe that it is. So because, because of those sorts of things, I, you know, have gone the academic route. Teaching is my first love, but not in a way that I have to do things to children that I think are not in their best interests. Alex Lawson is now completing a doctorate at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Meanwhile, the Ontario government has brought in an ambitious program of school reform. The key element in this program, in Lawson's view, is the introduction of province-wide testing, initially of grade three students. She thinks that it represents an attempt to return education to an imagined past in which teaching and learning were straightforward easily measured operations. The reasoning behind that is that if we bring these tests in, then teachers will, all of a sudden, they will learn to teach better and their children will do better just by virtue of bringing in these tests. It's such spurious reasoning. I mean, there's nothing in the literature on how to reform schools that suggests that you know, testing does not improve, genuinely improve uh, learning in children. It will superficially improve things because teachers will teach to the test, but it doesn't genuinely improve things. The government would like it to be that straightforward, very simple. You tell them to do this, you test them on it, and it will be done. It just doesn't recognize the reality of this situation and the complexity of learning. And they would like learning to be much more simple, I would say a behaviorist notion of what learning is. You know, you do it, you drill it, and it will happen. And if your viewpoint is, in fact, that learning is actually, children learn by constructing knowledge, if you have a constructivist belief about how real learning takes place, well, they just, you know, one flies in the face of the other. Lawson also thinks that province-wide testing is likely to lead to a polarization of the education system. She says it's not the tests themselves that are the problem. She generally commends the province's Education Quality Assessment Office for the kinds of performance-based tests they've devised. Nor would it be that worrying to her if the Provincial Ministry of Education were just trying to find out whether the schools are accomplishing the goals set for them.
The problem comes, she says, when the results are published and newspapers start to carry lists of schools ranked according to a simplified version of their students' results. She fears that this will foster competition between schools and encourage parents to pursue only the good of their own children, a future she feels is clearly visible in places like England that have already reformed education in this way. The research that I've read now about what's happening there is the combination of test results that in parents' hands and the test results of schools have led parents to try and go to those schools that have good results. And that their involvement has been solely around their own children and their own children's needs rather than the broader community. It's become a much more individualized effort on the part of parents doing something for their kid but not for the wider system because of the way it's structured around shop, essentially shopping for schools and using the, the test results as a means to shop. The parent is positioned as a client and the schools are something to be shopped for. That's my fear. More external testing has been one of the hallmarks of school reform throughout the English-speaking world. The result, for better or worse, depending on your point of view, has been the more competitive school system that Alex Lawson fears. There has also been a marked effect on the confidence and morale of teachers. External tests, amongst other things, are substitutes for a teacher's judgment about what should be taught, when it should be taught, and how the student's progress should be evaluated. The tests say, in effect, do what you're told and stick to the curriculum. One can question the extent to which teachers have ever been professionals in the sense of being able to set their own standards, but certainly they are now losing whatever elements of professionalism they once had. The external examiner symbolizes this loss. Daniel Ferry is a teacher in the state of Illinois which puts its grade six students through two weeks of standardized tests every March. These tests have been going on since 1985, two years before Daniel Ferry began teaching. Ferry is also a sometime broadcaster on Chicago's WBEZ, a national public radio station. This year, when March rolled around, he broadcast the following commentary, which I think says something both about standardized testing and about the situation of the teacher in a standardized regime. We repeat the broadcast with his permission. This March, I, like thousands of other sixth grade teachers across the state of Illinois, stood in front of my classroom and tore the plastic from a stack of papers on which were printed the topic my students and dozens of thousands of other sixth graders would spend the next 40 minutes writing about. The students, the teachers, and the schools are all graded on the results. We took the Illinois Goal Assessment Tests, the IGAPs. It's a state law that all across the state, students will write about the same topic, take the same test, follow the same rules, so that everyone, everything is the same. It's a law because the easiest way for politicians to pretend they care about education is to stand up and declare that students are not learning. 
because teachers can't teach and the schools are rotten and that we're going to fix it by taking a test. Not that those politicians have any idea what we would test for or how we would test for that even if we knew, but it does not matter. It sounds good on TV. So the Illinois State Legislature told our state bureaucrats to design tests in reading, writing, math, science, and social studies and to make everyone take them. We all took the eye gaps for two weeks in March so that everything, everyone, would be the same. Almost. Illinois students now learn to write by the numbers. The first paragraph of a paper must do this and this and this and this, and the three main body paragraphs must do that and that and that and that, and the conclusion paragraph must begin with two thises followed by three thats and end with an exciting this. Now, I'm not making this up or that. It's that bad. And those are just the rules for a persuasive type paper. We learn different rules for writing expository and narrative papers. This is not how people write. This is how people fill out tax forms. Then we have the reading test, then the math test, then Casimir Pulaski Day, and then, oh, God, help us. The kids hate it. The best writers especially hate it. Mr. Ferry, haven't you ever heard of foreshadowing? If I want to tell my story a different way, why can't I? I explained that our state legislature has determined that we must have standards of instruction. The children looked at me like I needed to blow my nose. I told them about basics of form that once mastered can be improvised on. They kept looking at me. I tried to convince them that these are efficient formulas for clear writing. They kept looking. Finally, I said, look, neither of us has any choice here. You have to take these tests, and I have to give them. And some poor soul in North Carolina has got to read and grade 500 of them a day. They have a list of rules, the rules you learn for writing each kind of essay in front of them. If you don't follow a rule, they take points from your score. They don't care what you write. They only care about the rules. If you don't follow the rules, you get a bad score. The scores are published in the paper. If our scores aren't good, then people won't think our schools are good, and they won't want to move here, which will make the real estate people mad, and they will yell at the school board, who will yell at the superintendent, who will yell at the principal, who will yell at me. This is not about writing. This is about not getting yelled at. This they understood. Each student receives an IGAP test booklet. Its front page is for student information. The students must record their name, grade, student ID number, date of birth, ethnicity, and God knows what else on it. Each letter or number goes in a box. Then under the box, in number two pencil, the student must fill in a circle that corresponds to that letter or number or ethnicity. The page looks like if a loan application and an optical illusion had a baby. If the boxes and circles aren't filled out right or the marks aren't dark enough, the machines can't read them and we get yelled at. We filled out the information pages on the day before we began the tests. After the students were finished filling them out, the pages looked like they'd been used to line bird cages. There were random marks everywhere. So my teaching partner and I stuck post-it notes on the worst of them saying, print your name more clearly, fill in circles under date of birth, or darken circles. The morning we gave the first writing test, my students sat vacant and resigned, like pickets Virginians waiting for the charge. I picked up the packet of prompt pages. The writing topic is printed on them and they are sealed in plastic for secrecy. I ripped the plastic and we handed them out. Then we handed out the students' test packets, some sporting post-it reminders to print your name or darken circles. Then I stood in front of the class and read from my booklet, which by law were the same exact words thousands of other sixth grade teachers would also be reading that morning. This is the test I told you about. You will have 40 minutes to blah, 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 ending with turn over the prompt page, read what the topic is, and begin writing. Good luck. I was not bound by state law to say good luck, but I thought it might be okay to wing it there. The topic was 
Should students be required to wear uniforms to school? The children picked up their pencils, took a breath, and wrote. The only sound was the turning of pages, the scratching, and sharpening of pencils. As required by law, I announced when 20 minutes were left in the test, then five, then when time was up. We collected the prompt pages because they must be counted and sent back to the state. We collected the test packets and I set them on my desk while the students stretched and talked quietly. Then I heard Duane ask Becky, What did you write about? Well, I wrote about uniforms. We all did. It said to do that on the paper. Mine didn't say that. Mine said to write about dance in circles. Becky and I both said, what? What did you write about? I wrote about dance in circles. Here, I'll show you. I reached for the pile of prompt pages, but Duane was already rummaging through the stack of test booklets. He said, no, it's not over there. It's on these. Becky said, those didn't say what to write about. Mine did. Duane pulled his test booklet out of the stack and pointed to the post-it I had stuck to the front page. On that post-it, I'd written, darken circles. See, right here. It says dance in circles. And so that's what I wrote about. That morning, thousands of sixth graders across the state of Illinois sat in their desks. They curled themselves around their pencils, stuck their tongues between their teeth, and wrote five-paragraph essays about wearing uniforms, all except one. His essay began, Well, I never thought much about dance in circles before today, but if that's what you want to know about, well, here goes. And somewhere in North Carolina... Some poor soul will reach into the stack of 500 essays they will read that day. 499 of them will be about wearing uniforms, and one won't. I would love to watch her face when she reads it. There may still be hope. wave of school reform began to take shape nearly 20 years ago, though it is only now cresting in certain parts of Canada. With some local exceptions, teachers have not been consulted about the changes that have taken place. They have been treated as the objects of school reform, when they haven't been seen as its enemies. In Ontario, one activist told me that she had urged on the Harris government the view that reform would never succeed unless the government had the gumption in her words, to take on the teachers, which presently they did. Andy Hargreaves is a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and the director of the Institute's International Centre for School Change. He has spent much of his career studying and writing about the work of teachers, and he thinks that taking on the teachers is a futile and misguided approach to educational reform. He thinks the way to improve education is by expanding the professional competence of teachers and by appealing to the idealism that draws people to teaching in the first place. It was in such a spirit, he says, that he began as a teacher himself. For me, it was an act of repair. Uh, I recall when I went to a rather stuffy English boys' grammar school and they sent me a questionnaire at the end of university saying you know, what were my intentions for my future career? Somewhat arrogantly, I said I planned to go into teaching and then to train a better generation of teachers than the ones who appeared to have taught me. And that's actually one reason why many people go into teaching. It is it is an act of repair, of, of restoration, of contributing to a better teaching community. 
After beginning as an elementary school teacher, Andy Hargreaves took what Alex Lawson earlier called the academic route. In recent years, he has studied the way school reform has unfolded in places that began reforming their school systems before Canada, like England, New Zealand and Australia. In these countries, he says, the process of reform has been driven by popular anxieties, both about economic conditions and about social morale. Reforming schools has been seen as a way of restoring social discipline and getting a grip on economic change. England, since the election of Margaret Thatcher, has been the most radical case. It moved very rapidly towards a, a peculiar combination of uh, a market system that was driven by a kind of new conservatism where the belief was, was that uh, children, but particularly their parents, were consumers and clients within an open market of choice for schools and that there would be ways of describing for public consumption how well those schools were doing in relation to each other so that parents could make those informed choices. And the idea was that the market, in that sense, should run relatively free and that those schools that did well would attract many students and would prosper and expand and survive. And those schools that did not do well would not attract many students and they would shrink and decline and close. And it was a Darwinian model of the survival of the fittest in, in an open market. Alongside that new conservatism, oddly, was, was an old conservatism, which was about the protection of national values, national culture, national heritage, uh, traditional subjects. So you found in England uh, a national curriculum, very detailed, very centrally controlled, where history was largely British history. Uh, literature was largely British literature. The results of that have been interesting and largely negative, I think, in, in terms of the research. The results in terms of markets have been that uh, there is no evidence that the learning gaps between uh, wealthy parents and poor parents, between middle-class families and lower-class families and their children have in any way closed uh, because of the establishment of this, of this market system. There is, at the same time, a lot of evidence that uh, the effects on teachers have been catastrophic in terms of uh, stress, uh, morale. Uh, there are shortages now for recruiting teachers into almost every subject in the secondary school curriculum in England because demoralisation with the profession runs that high. Um, one of the major sources of recruitment that has always been to teaching which is the sons and daughters of teachers going into teaching, uh, has almost dried up because uh, teachers have been telling their own children that teaching is not a worthwhile career uh, to go into because they feel so controlled, so constrained, so overloaded, uh, and so on. And, um, and there, there is also a lot of evidence that um, there's a widening gap between teachers and administrators, uh, that actually uh, administrators school principals and so on, are receiving more professional development than they did 10 years ago. And uh, teachers themselves are receiving less professional development, less opportunities to get better at the craft that will help students than, than they did 10 years ago. And last but not least, uh, what has begun to come out in England, but also in other countries like Australia and New Zealand, is uh, evidence of mounting indiscipline uh, in schools increasing rates of suspensions and exclusions from school. That's partly a result of the market, 
In other words, you're more likely to attract other parents if you keep the bad kids out of school uh, than if you keep them in. So it encourages you to suspend, to exclude, to expel, to transfer them to other schools so that your image will remain the same. But it's also a result of a very high-pressured academic climate which is all about uh, cognitive intelligence and not at all about the things that make children feel comfortable in school, which is that what they do has meaning for them, matters to them, and so on. Uh, so these are some of the kinds of patterns that have, that have taken place within England. These changes in England and elsewhere have often been presented as a restoration, a return to the tried and true after a period of romantic excess. These good old days are largely imaginary in Hargreaves' view, but the promise of returning to them is politically popular. This puts a persistent difficulty in the way of teacher-friendly school reform. What plays in politics and what works in schools, Hargreave says, are two entirely different things. At times of political panic, governments move towards control strategies rather than what we might call capacity-building strategies. Capacity-building strategies are developing the skills and the abilities and the knowledge in people to be able to operate more effectively in, the, in their organisation, which in this case is a school. Control strategies are predicated on the assumption that the reason our schools are failing is because teachers have been incompetent, or they've been lazy, or they've been stupid. And therefore, what the reforms need to do is attend to those deficits and control teachers into operating in, in a more different way. Governments operate off short time frames of electability. They operate off about uh, three or four year cycles of reform because they believe they may only have one shot at the target. Whereas educational reform cycles, in terms of what really makes a difference in classrooms, for teachers to engage with it, understand it, practice it and make it effective, tend to run in cycles of at least seven or eight to ten years before you see a positive impact of the reform taking effect within the classroom. So in terms of what really works, change strategies in education don't at all correspond with reform cycles in the political sphere. Because politics is out of phase with what is proven effective at the school and classroom level, reform of the type Hargreaves favours begins with a handicap. Nevertheless, he believes there are schools that are changing for the better, and that this successful adaptation is following a few critically important principles. The first is that schools must be accessible to their communities. The era of the fortress school with its bureaucratic please report to the office mentality is over. The second key principle is that schools must treat their students as whole persons and not as units of academic production. The key to progress in this respect, he thinks, lies in breaking down certain entrenched dichotomies. At the moment, academic rigor and studies more relevant to the student's experience and concerns are seen as exclusive alternatives. One either teaches to the intellect or teaches to the emotions, not both. But there need be no contradiction, Hargreave says, between supporting students and making demands on their minds. Many students feel emotionally disengaged from high school. 
When students are asked, in several studies of dropout that we looked at, when dropout students were asked, what would have been the one thing that would have kept you on in school? The answer that they give is not higher expectations, not clearer learning targets, not um, a better school development plan, but what they talk about is that what would have kept me here is the feeling that there is one adult here who knows me and cares for me, and that that would make a difference. And we know from all the research on resilience, which is the ability of students to bounce back against severe hardships that they suffer in their life, uh, from their family, from their community, from poverty, from alcoholism and so on. Though what makes a difference to them is one adult connection in their lives, who is a role model for them, who is somebody that can, they can take their concerns to, bounce things off and so on. And high schools have been bereft of this in large ways, not because teachers don't care, but because the whole structure of high school based on subjects, uh, disciplines, a kind of 1950s, 60s nostalgic view of how good high schools should be, has squeezed out the ability of teachers to connect emotionally as well as intellectually with their students uh, because they simply have too many students to teach. And so kids fall between the cracks. They lose interest, they become disengaged. Um, and therefore the high school especially has to pay attention to emotional as well as intellectual learning, to put the two together. And that's done through good relationships with teachers and through a curriculum which engages with students' lives at various points, which engages with their future work lives, which engages with their families and communities, which engages with the social and political and environmental world around them, about which uh, research again shows they care very, very deeply at this point in their development. And that can be combined with very high standards, very demanding curricula. It doesn't have to be done instead of meeting those particular objectives. Accommodating students as whole persons requires that they be known by teachers, as Hargreaves has said, and this demands in turn that teachers have the time and the necessary support and encouragement to be able to respond to students in this way. Lots of things now stand in the way of closer relations between students and teachers. The large size of many schools, the way the school day is organized, the shortage of time, but the most critical obstacle in Hargreaves' estimation, is persistent misinterpretation of the interests and motives of teachers. Teachers are seen as the enemies of school change when they ought to be seen as its agents. In order for schools to be good places for children to be, places where children can learn, they have to be good places for teachers to be, places where teachers can learn. In order to teach better, Teachers have to have the means to know how to teach better over time. Now, one way we often approach this is by short in-service workshop sessions or professional development days. Uh, some governments in some provinces in this country have tried to front-load some of that in-service training into the school holidays before school starts. The evidence is, is that when professional development is, is dealt with in an isolated way. If you're taught uh, a new mathematics curriculum or you're taught how to handle a new software program way ahead of when you're actually going to sit down with the kids and do it, the evidence is the learning doesn't transfer. The, the learning only really transfers 
if, if you have ways of talking to other teachers about your work and getting support from other teachers about your work and getting ideas and input from other colleagues and from consultants in the system, actually while you're engaged with kids, on the same day you're engaged with kids or the same week you're engaged with kids, building this kind of professional community in a school where teachers talk about teaching together and share good ideas about teaching together and acquire new ideas from the outside and bring them into their school this will not happen by spontaneous combustion just by itself it needs certain kinds of supports to make that possible uh, one of them is time now we're seeing in the province of ontario that time is something that's just been taken away from teachers within the school day but I've actually researched um, how teachers spend their preparation time. And the evidence is that if the school leadership has a focus on getting teachers to talk together about teaching, that the provision of time within the school day can make a huge difference as to whether they are able to do that effectively. If they're always expected to add it on at the end of the day or do it in school vacations, it, it's the wrong time and it's less effective. Those are the times when they're running around trying to contact parents, connecting with kids, uh, marking books and so on. So time within the school day really makes a difference for building that kind of professional community. Good quality leadership makes a difference for building that kind of professional community. Not leaders who see themselves as managers, who see themselves as conductors of what other people are doing. Not leaders who keep their cards close to their chest. Um, but, but leaders who are able to support their staff, to motivate them, to work alongside their staff, to model team leadership. Uh, as a principal with a school so that the staff can work more effectively as, as a team and function together. So building a strong professional community means, means a set of don'ts. It, it means uh, not shaming teachers, not withdrawing resources, not building a general climate of demoralization which discourages teachers and increases stress for them, not, not handling a pace of change that is so fast that teachers can't cope with it, and it means a set of do's. It, it means definitely expecting that teachers work together as a community and not treat their classroom as a separate castle or kingdom into which no one else should, should intrude. Uh, for teachers of an older school, uh, teaching was the second most private act uh, that people performed in, uh, in society. And I think that, that has to change now. And another do is it means providing as well as the leadership and the encouragement and the expectation that teachers work as a community, it means providing the time and the resources for teachers to be able to work as a community as well. If teachers are to become this kind of vibrant professional community, Hargreaves says, one of the things they will have to do is to reorient their unions away from the bread and butter issues and towards the quality of education issues that concern the public. The public will not believe that teachers' resistance to change expresses devotion to the cause of public education rather than to their own perks, he goes on, unless teachers put forward a positive program for school change. What the unions can do collectively, I think, which some unions are doing, I think, very strikingly within the United States, is to show uh, not only that they are against change, that they are opposed to bad reforms, 
uh, and many governmental reforms are appallingly bad reforms in, in how they're designed and, and how they're implemented and the pace at which they're implemented. But, but I, I think it's really a challenge to unions to, to begin to show what kinds of changes they support, what kinds of changes that benefit students they want to promote, changes that not only advantage their members. So, for example, lower class sizes in the primary years uh, create more jobs for primary teachers. Uh, for elementary teachers. But I think the public would like to see changes that the unions advocate that make demands on their members, that are difficult for their members, that require new learning on the part of their members. I think the public would like to see the unions more seriously uh, taking up issues of teacher incompetence and teacher evaluation. And there are some unions in the states that have done that very, very seriously by, for example, evaluating their peers by peer assessment. So the unions have participated with districts uh, in, in Cincinnati, for example, and no longer does the administrator evaluate the teacher, usually by one observation once a year, because that's the only time they have to do it. But, but peers from other schools evaluate uh, teacher competence, observe teachers. And paradoxically, what they found because of this is that um, rates of removal from the profession have not decreased but they've actually increased because given the opportunities, teachers are much more demanding of their colleagues as a community than many of the public think that they are from the outside. Making teachers a true professional community, combining academic rigor with emotional relevance, and making schools more open and more accountable to the surrounding community. These are the principles that Andy Hargreaves thinks ought to inform school change. But reform will not succeed, he says finally, without a willingness to radically alter the structure of the familiar, unwieldy industrial relics we call schools, particularly high schools. Well, we really, really have to think, and it's one of the most painful things for the public and schools to be able to take on. We have to take seriously the question of what do we need to do to our high schools to make them welcoming and involving places for all students, not just the academically capable, not just the future valedictorians, not just those who will have a place as jocks on the sports teams. But what can we do to make these places that are inclusive for all kids? What can we do to restructure the curriculum and the ways of organising lessons that get beyond it being one teacher, one discipline, one class. One teacher, one discipline, one class. And kids move from class to class, like they move between flights in an overcrowded airport, dragging their luggage from their lockers behind them as they go. And the only difference between an overcrowded airport and some of our largest secondary schools is that the airlines don't demand that you enjoy the flights when you're actually on them, which is something that schools and teachers sometimes do. And uh, I've shadowed grade nine students going round from one lesson to the next. And you wouldn't believe the impossibly small fragments of time that they have to get from one end of the building to their locker to the other end of the building and change frames from being in chemistry and having to hypothesize and investigate and document results very carefully, suddenly to being creative with poetry in another lesson within about a three minute time frame. Uh, we really need to think of ways of restructuring our high schools so that um, 
Kids in the early years of high school, when they are most vulnerable to dropping out, feel that they're part of a community of, of other kids that follows the curriculum through together, a common curriculum. Feels that there's a small number of teachers that they need to get to know who will follow them through the year so that the kids know each other, the kids know the teachers, the teachers know the kids, and it's a smaller group of teachers dealing with these kids, and the teachers know each other. But we've got to get the idea that if uh, schools are going to be good places for students to be, they have to be good places for teachers to be, and that teachers have to be seen as part of the solution to educational reform and not as part of the problem, or not only as part of the problem. On Ideas Tonight, you heard part three of the Education Debates by David Cayley. We'll continue the series tomorrow night with a look at a number of innovative school reform movements in the United States. And that program will feature New York teacher Deborah Meyer and the former dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Ted Sizer. A complete schedule of the series is available on the CBC website. Go to www radio.cbc.ca and look for ideas. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. Associate producers Kathleen Pemberton and Liz Notch. Technical direction by David Field. A transcript of the whole series is available for $25 and a set of audio tapes will cost you $90, including shipping and taxes. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Coming up, the national news, followed by the arts today, and between the covers. <laughs>